If you are in between the ages of four and the second grade, you are welcome to be excused to kids club. If you are not in that age bracket, you're terrified that I'm going to preach for an hour. As we work through this passage this morning, we've got two passages we're going to look at. The application of both of them is worship. And with an application of worship, it only seems suitable that we would preach first and then worship as a result of what we've heard. It made sense as we were putting together this Sunday to do that. So it won't be a a regular move, but this morning it made a lot of sense. We are working through a three-week series for Christmas, preparing our hearts for Christmas. We've called this series, Seek the King. And it's a busy time of year for all of us with so many priorities. In fact, yesterday I made the colossal mistake of trying to take my children to Shields to buy my, to let my kids buy their mom a Christmas present. We do this every year. It's been a fun tradition. Uh, we went into Shields and the line was about an hour and a half long. Uh, we didn't wait in that line. We went to Target where we normally shop. It, it's, it's funny, Pierce was pretty con- convinced that his mother needed a Nerf gun. Um, <laughs> Anna Kate thought her mom needed Legos. I tell you this because she's not here, so I can get away with revealing Christmas presents. We nearly settled on a pair of adult Batman pajamas with a cape. Um, I, there was a lot, of, a lot to go with that, but we, we stopped short. But even yesterday, I'm reminded of how we make the season busy with so many other things, whether it's gifts, families, traditions. And we've come back to this statement that it's possible for us to have a great full meaningful Christmas and miss the king. So we spent the last two weeks considering the Christmas story. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of the wise men in Matthew 2. We considered the responses of the king. When the wise men came, they ran into King Herod. And King Herod was too busy focusing on himself, too caught up on his own plan to mind the birth of a baby. He sought out the chief priests and the scribes who knew all of the right answers knew the texts, could explain it all, but it never seemed to mean anything to them. And then you have the wise men who overcome all the obstacles, persevere in their journey, and they become the least likely of these three to turn to worship. And that's exactly what they did. Their journey ended with worshiping the king. Last week we considered the shepherds in Luke 2. The pronouncement from the angel that he was the Savior, the Christ and our Lord, that he's our Deliverer, our Messiah, and that he is the King. And their response was worship. This week, we'll be focusing our attention on the King. The baby that was born in Bethlehem. You've been challenged to not be like Herod, or the chief priests or the scribes, But to be like the wise men and the shepherds and seek out the king. And as we enter into this Christmas season, we remember that Christ was born, the king was born. But it'd be an easy mistake for us to think that that was the beginning. So let's open up the book, the Gospel of John, and see how it starts. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, page 886 in your Red Pew Bible. 
fascinating thing about John. John was one of the disciples. We've kind of made some distinctions as we've worked through. Uh, John probably, if you've never done math on this, likely was 13 when he was called to be a disciple. He was the youngest of all of them. It explains why he can live another 70 years before writing the book of Revelation. He's, he's a young guy. One of the fascinating things is that all the gospels seek to place Jesus in a historical setting. You know, if you look at Matthew, if you look at Luke, they, they tell you these birth accounts. But John's historical setting for Jesus starts a little earlier. John 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning... John ties Jesus to the very beginning of creation, ties it to Genesis, the book of Genesis. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Suggest this company with a special relationship with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus goes beyond just being with God, that Jesus was God from the very beginning. If we were to correctly understand John 1.1, It's going to clarify the doctrine of the Trinity for us. It's going to tell us that the Word was eternal. And the Word is in a relationship to to God. And the Word is God. This becomes significant for us because this, when we start considering the basis of Jesus, He's not just a baby laying in hay. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 2. He did not come into existence. From eternity past, he was with the Father. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. That Jesus was the agent for creation. That as donkeys would come to worship, it's because he made them. As he laid them in hay, it's because he designed the hay. As they put them under a stars, it was him who put the stars in the sky. He was the agent of creation. It's affirmed throughout the New Testament. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And John starts to put forth the gospel that not only is Jesus co-eternal, not only was he God, not only was the creator, but in him is found life, true life. And the life is the light of men. John will tell you in chapter 10, verse 10, that quoting Jesus, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And he wants you to know that this baby who is co-eternal, the creator, brings life. And life abundantly. Verse 5, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The very nature of the Christmas story is then the reality on a deep dark night when the world was caught in sin. A bright light appeared. And the light wasn't just a star The star foretold of a baby. The bright light was the baby. And the darkness would never overcome the light. And a mere nine verses later, John, still in his introduction, comes to the Christmas story in 114. He says, In the Word, the Word, 
this co-eternal from infinity before, this creator became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm not in the habit of quoting the message, but Eugene Peterson says the word became flesh and he moved into our neighborhood. He came to be amongst us. He came to live with us. He walked away from heaven and became a baby. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And as we approach Christmas and we see manger scenes with babies, be mindful of the fact that he wasn't just a baby. He was a co-eternal creator, a third of the Trinity king born in human flesh. That's the significance of Christmas. And if the birth of Jesus is not the beginning of his story, then we can make an equal mistake by thinking that the birth of Jesus is the end of the story also. That we, like so many other people, could come into a Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of a baby, hand each other a gift, and walk away as if nothing is different. See, the Christmas story doesn't begin with the birth of a baby, and it doesn't end with the birth of a baby either. Because Jesus went on to live a perfect life, and to die a death to atone for my sin and for yours. And though Jesus was born fully human, you can't describe that better than being born as a baby. He was also born the king. But as we approach Christmas, as we approach the baby, remember this, that Jesus is no longer a baby. He grew up to be a man. He grew up to be a man that died on a cross for our sins and was ascended to the right hand of our heavenly father. John continues to write about that. I've, I've kind of laughed that as we've walked through this series, we looked at last week at Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, and this week we're going to consider John, who is also a significant New Testament writer, writing John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then the book of Revelation. So I want us to consider where Jesus is now. Not the most common Christmas message you're going to hear, but if you'd flip over to Revelation 4 and 5, roughly page 1030 in a Red Pew Bible, you'll find this. In the book of Revelation, it's a book that was received, John received a vision from the Lord. It was, we've talked a little bit about the disciple John. Uh, you should know at this point he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. People like to say that all of the disciples were um, ex- executed with the exception of one. You should know that John was actually considered to be executed. The Romans took John, didn't know what to do with him, so they decided to boil him alive, according to tradition. Having boiled him alive, he got up and walked out of the pot. The Romans, not knowing exactly what to do with that, considered him executed and exiled him. That's why they put him on an island, expecting him to die on the island. John lived a pretty decent life on an island and wrote a number of letters, including Revelation. This book is a fascinating book. It's the only book in the Bible that promises you that by reading it, you'll be blessed. Just by reading it. And there's lots of blessings to be found in here, as it is an apocryphal, a prophetic, and an epistolary book. A couple other things you should note. 
There are 404 verses in Revelation which contain 278 references to the Old Testament. The majority of this book looks backwards as much as it looks forward. And more than any other book in the New Testament, it had wide distribution and early recognition. There was nobody early on that didn't think that this was significant. So as you work through this early book of Revelation, as Jesus is giving John a view, a vision, one of the things that becomes extraordinarily encouraging about this book is this idea that God is sitting on the throne. And he gives you a unique picture of the throne in Revelation 4 and 5. Let me read it for you. Revelation 4, 1. And after this I, this is John talking, looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, the voice of Jesus, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was taken in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. John has the opportunity, this incredibly unique opportunity to physically walk into the throne room of God. Now one of the things we've got to appreciate about this text as we pause here is that when you pray to God, you have the same opportunity. In, in Hebrews 4.16 it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That means when you come to God in prayer, you have the unique opportunity to walk right into the throne room where he is king and talk to him. Over the last couple of weeks, studying through this, it's just made me realize what a cool opportunity that is. And as I've been discipling my kids, just to sit with them, and it's changed how I pray with my kids. Because I used to want my kids to pray these really structured prayers or these make daddy proud prayers. And now we get together and we say, Pierce, because of the blood of Jesus, we get to walk into the throne room of God. And God wants to talk to you about anything. We have confidence because of Jesus to talk to him about anything. What do you want to talk to God about? And it's this really fun appreciation for me as I disciple my kids to watch my kids really open up and talk to God more. You will not be shocked to find out that my five and a half year old son likes to share his Lego projects with God. But somewhere in that you've got to appreciate that God is a creator has got to appreciate a five-year-old's creation. He's got to have some appreciation of it. It's, it's Pierce mirroring the very essence of who God is. And so where I, is, on one hand, go, Pierce, can you talk to God about some important things? That would be nice. i got to think there's this cool connection where I'm opening him up to share anything he wants with God, Legos or otherwise. Anna Kate, on the other hand, and she will always be a story. Anna Kate always wants to pray for her cousin. She has one cousin, wants to pray for her every day. Daddy, let's pray for Tyler. Why? I don't think she feels good today. All right, let's talk to God about Tyler, who may or may not be feeling well today. But the essence of it is, as you come to this baby to remember that he's the king, to remember the king that you have access to his throne room, to remember his throne room means that you can come in and talk to him about anything. 
where that becomes crucial for this Christmas season is statistically most of you are carrying an inordinate amount of stress more than you normally do. That you're weighed down, you're bogged down, you're carrying all kinds of burdens and you don't know what to do with them. So what's the answer? Go to the king. Walk into the throne room of God with confidence because of the blood of Jesus and talk to him about whatever's on your heart, Legos or otherwise. And know that when you come into his throne room through the access of his son Jesus, he's delighted to see you there, regardless of your topic. God delights it when his kids, he delights in you when you come before him. Now, I make a huge deal about that because as we walk through this next passage, this throne room is pretty incredible. There's a lot going on there. It's a little bit like my dad's office as a child. There were some awards or trophies or all sorts of formal things that made me feel like I wasn't welcome. And yet, that's not the heart of our father. You're always welcome in the throne. You're always welcome to come to him. Verse 3. And he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of Jasper, probably more like a diamond, and Cornelian, probably a ruby. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. By the way, if you trace this Jasper, Cornelian, and emerald, these are the foundations of the new city that will be formed in eternity. So if we're impressed by it, just know that that's like concrete in eternity. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now truth be told, we don't know a whole lot about who these elders were. Some say there are 24 angels. Some say that there are 24 humans. Some say that there's 12 angels and 12 humans. The reality is that John, when God gives him this opportunity, is so overwhelmed by everything, he doesn't take thorough notes on every aspect. But the idea is that these guys were ruling. And let's see as we walk through this passage how they handle their rule. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and poop and peals of thunder. And before the throne was burning, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a, was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're constantly decrying God's holiness because he's holy. It's possible in the spectrum of Protestant church that we walk in that we can so overappreciate God's friendship that we underappreciate his holiness. And to appreciate that when you walk into his throne room, it is an extraordinarily holy place. It's crazy holy. 
But that doesn't mean you're not invited. Do you see that because of Jesus, because of his blood, you're welcomed here. These angels that are decrying, holy, 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 are doing it while Pierce is talking about his Legos. And God is delighted. The response, even of these creatures, was worship. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before their throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now step back for just a second and read back through that and see what happens here. When these four living creatures decry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, when you trace back to verse 9, whenever this happens, and it's always, whenever this happens, according to verse 8, they never stop. Whenever this happens, the 24 elders fall down and worship. So you see this picture of this continual worship where these men who've achieved status in eternity do nothing more but to, to kneel down, to fall to their knees and throw all of their rewards, everything that they have before God and to cry, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the throne room of God. This is God the Father sitting on a throne, the very place that you're encouraged to come to him in prayer. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was sitting on the throne a scroll written on the back and sealed with seven seals. Pause there for just a second. We have God the Father, the King, sitting on his throne holding a scroll, written on both sides. Now, the scriptures don't declare what that scroll is, but if you follow through the book of Revelation, you find the unfolding of human history. Now, one of the things that we could take confidence is that right now, God the Father is sitting on the throne holding a scroll in his hand, meaning everything is taken care of. Everything is under control. He's got it all worked out. He knows he's in charge. And the great confidence that we could take in him, knowing that he's sitting on the throne, holding a scroll that everything is taken care of, is awesome. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who could open human history? Who could know the heart of man? Who could know the heart of God? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Here nothing will challenge the authority of God. Nothing. Nobody could open it. Nothing could open it. 
verse 4, and I began to weep. This word in Greek is a continual verb. It's, I began to weep and weep and weep. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. There was not a worthy entity anywhere. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One of the elders satisfies his fear. And in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated at the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And in a moment, you see this picture where God the Father sitting on the throne, holding a scroll. People are looking to define, to describe who could ever open this thing. Is anyone worthy even to touch it? And Jesus Christ walks into the throne room and takes it from the hand of the Father and assumes authority. He's the king. And not just the king of a a country, the king of the planet. And not just the king of a planet, the king of the universe, and of all time, of all things, everywhere. See, we could make it about a baby and miss the very nature of who this guy is that we're talking about. We could make it about a little bitty thing going goo goo gaga and miss the creative nature of the co-eternal being, third of the Trinity, king who rules over everything. And has authority over everything because God the Father handed it to him. In the throne room. So what happens after that? And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They fell down and they worshipped him. They worshipped him because he was slain, because he died on the cross for your sins and mine. And the covering of his blood ransomed us. And not just us, people from every tribe, people from every ethnicity, every language, people, nation. Alte ethnos is the Greek term. There would not be a single tribe on earth that is not represented in eternity. And through Jesus, they made him to a kingdom. And he made you a priest that you would worship God. Verse 11, and then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. You break down that term, it's roughly 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 and then some. I'm not good at math. 
you figure it out. You got to carry one a couple of times, I think. Myriads and myriads of angels saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, verse 13, and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. As we approach Christmas Day, we remember the birth of Jesus Christ. But we remember that it wasn't the beginning. That according to the scriptures, Jesus is co eternal, He has no beginning, He existed from the beginning of time. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, that he came in human flesh, in human form, so that we could relate to him, so that we could understand him, so ultimately his sinless life and perfect death could ransom us with his blood. He was slain in our place. He removed the penalty of our sin. And while his righteousness was imputed to us, our sin was imputed to him. Jesus didn't stay in a manger. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's worthy of all of our worship. This Christmas season... Don't miss the opportunity to worship the king. The wise men worship the king. The shepherds worship the king. All of the angels, all of the elders, all of eternity will worship the king. This Christmas season, don't just see Jesus as a baby. Seek him as the king. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you as a church. We walk in together as a large group of people into your throne room because we have access through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we could talk to you about anything. We could put anything before you. Truly, your throne room is a majestic and holy place. We want to thank you for your son. That he was born of a as a baby, and lived a human life perfectly and sinlessly and died on a cross for our sins. And we want to thank you that that little baby grew up and he sits at the right hand of the Father. God, we thank you and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.